everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. And today I am with Stephanie Miller in DC. Thanks so much for joining, Stephanie. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. Your morning, my evening. That's right. Yeah, we're on opposite sides of the day. And in fact, you're reliving my yesterday, I believe. <laughs> Hopefully not in terms of the heat and humidity. Yeah. Um, I lived around the D.C. area for a while, so I'm, I'm familiar. It's a wonderful area. You said hot and humid today. Is that right? Yes, you know, typical August weather in D.C., maybe a little warmer this summer than usual, but uh, this feels more like August than, you know, it was when it was like this in June, July, it was more disturbing. But now it's just August in the swampy D.C. area. Yeah, yeah, pretty hot and humid. Not my favorite time of year. And you've also had the semi, the cicadas, uh, didn't oh. you? We did. In fact, we have a new phase of the cicadas. I don't know if you've heard about this. We had the cicadas, which were lovely. You know, people were either freaked out about them or they loved them. I actually didn't mind them at all. Uh, but the interesting thing that nobody expected or very few people I know of expected is that once the cicadas sort of went back underground and, you know, their shells remain here and there, uh, we got in oak trees something called the oak mite, which normally stays up in the trees. But because the cicadas have planted their larvae in different branches of the trees and the leaves where the larvae are, are falling, they are dropping upon us these oak mites. And we all got these mysterious bites we thought it was a spider bite. We thought it, we didn't know what it was. Anyway, it turns out it's these oak bites. Now everybody's writing about it on listservs and we all know what it is. And we all try to, I wear a hat now and I go walking. Yeah, it's our new our new life. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> For you now. should adopt uh, what a lot of Japanese women do is carry an umbrella, which keeps the heat off, but that would also help keep your oak, oak mites off. <laughs> uh, I think that is sounds so smart for so many reasons, and I maybe I'll try that tomorrow. <laughs> that sounds good. All right, uh, for our listeners and audience, you may notice that Stephanie has not been able to join us by camera today, um, but we do have audio, so we decided to go ahead and try to introduce her wonderful new book, Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way and show some of the pictures from the book and talk about some of her ideas. And then in about a month's time, hopefully we, or in a few weeks when we can work out the camera, uh, we will do a follow-up and you can see Stephanie's lovely face, which I saw for a brief second, but it was so fleeting. We want to have you back <laughs> with picture as well, Stephanie. <laughs> we'll figure that out. That would be great. Yeah, we'll figure that out. Uh, so let's talk about um, your background a little bit. You have a really interesting background. You worked for 25 years uh, with an international finance corp. Tell us yes. a little bit about that experience, what you were doing. Yes. Yeah, so I, the, you know, the International Finance Corporation is the private sector arm of the World Bank. So the mission there is, you know, like the World Bank to try to help 
um, with projects in developing countries to boost those economies. And the IFC's angle is supporting the private sector in those countries. And sort of the peak of my career at IFC, we of IFCs, the acronym is, was when I was leading climate change at IFC. Um, and we did lots of great things, you know, working with government, working with private sector. I say great things because, um, you know, I think in some markets, we actually really changed, shifted the market entirely, whether it was about, you know, getting clean energy, getting the first solar project in a country, or the first wind project in a country, or starting to get a, a green buildings program off the ground for developing countries. Um, anyway, it was it was heady stuff. I loved doing it, uh, but the problem was I would come home every day, and I would feel like, okay, I'm doing all this stuff on climate in my work life, but I'm coming home and I'm feeling really inadequate in terms of what I'm doing in my private life. So that was always I always felt like a contradiction for me. Yeah, I understand that, and it. it really interesting how you were working with uh, green buildings and you helped develop the edge, the what is excellence in design and greater efficiency. So a focus on energy and water. I yes. really find that really interesting. We've had a few architects and uh, designers in the talk show series so far. And of course, building design more sustainably and using better options is such an important part of living more sustainable or developing more sustainable communities and cities, right? Yes, I mean, that was probably some of the most exciting work that we were doing. Uh, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you get it right, especially in really growing urban areas, if you get that, if you build it right, then you're locking in more efficiency over 40, 50 or more years for a building. It's so important. But what we were finding, I say we because I you know, was there 25 years, so I still say we, what IFC was finding um, is that you know, the really expensive certification programs in developed countries were not really what was needed when we were looking at a low-income housing development or a three-star hotel in one of our markets. They needed something that was easier to access. So we helped develop both the certification program and then a, a, a system that would allow designers and architects to really quickly see what the most you know, the low hanging fruit was for them in terms of saving money and also saving energy, saving water, um, which were the ones that made the most sense. And, and actually, in a way, I realized as I was writing the book that it was that thinking that led me to the thinking I ended up developing when I started tackling zero waste in my own life. It was that idea of, you know, don't try to do everything. The perfect can be the enemy of the good focus on the easy and most impactful things. And then, you know, you're more likely to do them and, and you'll really be making a difference. I think that's so important. And that's, that's what some people who just start, they get overwhelmed by that zero waster on YouTube who has all of her <laughs> plastic trash in one small jar. And they think I could never do that. Or yeah. they have, you know, they know that eating meat is bad and they think, well, I can't give it up. It just doesn't fit my lifestyle. So I love all of your 
your advice and your strategies from the book. And I think that comes from this great background career that you had focused on what is possible, what mm. is actionable, what can we actually do with yeah. sustainability within a set time frame, not a pie in the sky kind of idea, but what can we take to use and see the progress right now, yes. you know, and I, yes. I love that strategy and that's the way we need to think. So you were focused more on 25% or 20% uh, greenhouse emission reduction, and that would get the edge certification. And it seems like you've taken a similar approach for the 80-20 hmm. way. It's, it's really, it's, I think, a very practical strategy for sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit about 80-20? Where does that come from? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think you're actually the first person who's interviewed me and made that connection. Um, yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and I just want to acknowledge what you said a few minutes ago. It is, it can be so paralyzing. The, this, you know, seeing, I was actually initially inspired by the Mason jars worth of trash, you know, the B Johnson. I loved her book, tried to do a lot of those things, but that's not for most of us. Most of us will never get to, and I certainly do not even today get to a Mason jars worth of trash in a week. I am not that person, right? So, drastically minimized our uh, our carbon footprint and our waste footprint, but not to zero. And I think if I were still trying to get to zero, I'd be pulling my hair out. So the 80-20 idea was this idea I borrowed from my business uh, place, which I think a lot of us, I, I find about half the people I talk to have heard of it and the other half hasn't, haven't. It's, it's basically this economics principle, the Pareto principle of 80-20, that not all actions are created equal. And that if you focus on the you know, 20% most impactful things that you could do, you could get to about 80% of the result. And so we used to use this all the time at my work. We would say, oh, you know, we're spending 80% of our time on 20% of our clients, but those are the most important clients. They give us the, the most business, so we need to continue doing it and that sort of thing. But when I realized that I wanted to pursue a zero-waste lifestyle and I was never going to get to zero, I mean, even B. Johnson doesn't get to zero, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, the stuff in bulk gets delivered to a zero waste store in some kind of packaging. So, you know, when I realized I was not going to get to zero, I thought, well, I need to find that 80-20 rule for zero waste living. So what could I pick of all the thousands of things that I started reading about once I took some time after leaving my organization. Um, what were the things I could pick to do that I knew if I took the time to do them, they would be impactful? And I landed on three areas. Yes, you're showing them on the screen. What I call the magic three, focus on food, purge plastic, and recycle right. And you know what I what I love, by the way, about zero waste living is it's got this great intersection with carbon you know, climate, addressing the climate crisis. And so I was really energized by not just the idea of reducing my waste, but everything that that implied in terms of energy reduction as well. So uh, yeah, we can go into these, um, but the, I'll just say the biggest surprise for me when I started doing my own research was on the food category. I mean, we all have, we all know 
We need to recycle better. We all know we're generating way too much waste and we're seeing images of it in you know, the sea turtles nostrils and all over the oceans and even in our own backyards. But the food piece of it, you know, I, I did know a vegetarian diet is more planet friendly, but I did not know how planet friendly, first of all, that of all the things that, all the actions that could be taken by government, by private sector, by individuals, you know, reducing your food weight, reducing your, uh, sorry, increasing your vegetarian meals is up there in the top five. And the other thing in the top five is reducing food waste. And I, I'm, I'm dying to ask you about how this is done more in Japan. I've been talking to some friends about it the last few days, knowing I was going to be on your show, but food waste in most developed countries, certainly the U.S. and Canada, is, you know, at the consumer is the biggest part of the problem. And then food waste, as we know, in the landfill is a huge generator of methane, which is so much more powerful as a greenhouse gas compared to CO2. But I, you know, I, I was actually curious as I was, because I know the figures for the U.S. and Canada, but um, in Japan, I, I don't, you know, food waste, I don't know if it's as big an issue there. I don't know if you, because you don't huge. have the big. No, it's, it, it's a huge issue. Um, yeah. And food security and food insecurity and food waste are all connected here too, right? You have people yes. who are, are food insecure and then you have so much food waste. And to me, that is the people planet connection that's most yes. gut-wrenching for me. Is yes. we're, we're talking about organizational failure. It's not, it's not, you know, on the individual really. Like we we need to sort that out. That's that's an obvious no-brainer. Um, one thing before we move on to that. I love the when you're talking about 80-20 and that concept from business that managers spend most of their time with the best employees and the worst employees 80% of the yeah. time. And, <laughs> and I thought that is exactly like teaching because I was in the university oh, system for teaching. Yes. And that is so true. You spend 80% of your time focused on the best students and the worst students and, you yes. know, you really try to address that. And then this concept moved into what is, you know, the biggest change that we can make in terms of small changes that we can yeah. do right now. So yeah. the concept itself is, is so wonderful and so easy to understand. Yes, I think once you, you know, again, some people have been exposed to the, that phrase and some people haven't, but once you know what it is, you can think of a thousand examples in your own life of, oh yeah, if I just put my effort into this or I end up putting all my effort into this, as you said, as a teacher, you would, you know, focus on the difficult students, the, the troubled, whatever, the troubled students and the excellent students. Yeah, that's the 20% in my mother's a school teacher. So I know that's the 20% in teaching for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this focus on food and you've got so much great advice in the book um, talking about the methane of landfills. Of course, this is a similar problem in Japan, although um, most of the trash in Japan is incinerated. It's yes. not not landfill. But one thing that I I learned, and I know you do this as well, when I visited Recology, the recycling facility yes. in San Francisco, where they're really 
high at 80% diversion from landfill. They're doing a lot of recycling and zero waste strategies, including composting, which mm -hmm. was one of the big ways to reduce food waste and the methane in the landfill. And one thing he said is that if you have mandatory composting, your recycling is cleaner. And your recycling, yes. like your cardboard boxes and your bottles and cans, has more value in terms of the recycling value system. And so I thought that was really interesting knock-on effect of yes. doing composting. And I know you're a big composting advocate as well. Yes, and I, I will admit I'm new to composting. I mean, it was when I had this aha moment about, wow, so I've been throwing all this food that I didn't manage to eat. Yeah, well, there's two different issues, right? One, I mean, they're related, but one is reduce your food waste because in the U.S. at least and in Canada, it's more than 40% of the problem. The majority of the problem is at the household level, not at the farm, not in the transportation to the stores, not in the restaurants, not in the hotels. It's, it's at the household level. But then once you've got it, you know, we're all going to throw away some banana peels or whatever else. So even if you're really good and you reduce your food waste, if you put it in the garbage, it is going to the landfill and it's creating methane. So when I had that aha moment and I understood I was part of the problem when I was choosing to put my food waste in the garbage and that there is an alternative, you know, that's, that was just, yeah. Then I, then I did everything I could to compost. And you're showing a picture now of me at a compost bin that my friends made for me uh, when they realized I got the bug uh, you know, I used to always think composting was just for my gardening friends. It wasn't for someone like me. Um, but initially, I did not have this compost bin. And I don't, again, I don't know if this is true in Japan, but in the U.S., there are, in some cities, and we're very lucky in D.C., there are actually services for a fee that will come and pick up your compost we on a weekly basis, at compostable food waste, and bring it to a composting facility. In DC, I love that idea. We yeah, don't have that here yet. And then you mentioned that one of the services, you pay a fee, they pick up your compost, and then they give you back some composted beautiful soil you can use in your garden. I thought yes, that was so, a great idea. Yeah, so because I wasn't a gardener when this all started, I, I, I said, you have to request the bags of the, you know, the, the finished compost. I said, no, thank you at the beginning. And then by the end, before I started composting on my own, I said, you know, actually I will take a bag because by then the pandemic had hit and I was actually gardening a little bit uh, or at least, you know, playing around with gardening. We now do some tomatoes and some lettuce. It's not vast, but you know, then you want that great nu nutrient rich composting soil at the end. And yeah, so those services, great the great compost uh, bin area, nice wooden frame. Uh, we've talked to some gardeners and farmers, organic farmers in the series. And of course, composting is such a great way to reduce food waste and food scraps that you would have to throw out in your bin. Um, there's not that kind of compost scheme in Japan, as far as I know. Um, but I'm trying to set up something with local organic farmers to just tell their customers that they're willing to take their compost. And I've donated our compost to them. There's also oh. machines you can get in Japan if yes. you don't have a garden to dig it in and it can dry it out 
to like a potpourri type consistency yes. and then it's easier to put even in potted plants right yes no that exactly that that's it's the uh, if that's if that's what you have room for and that's what you have use for then it's perfect yeah i think once you you know once once you open your eyes to it, then you want to try to figure out what you can do. You know, there's even a service. I discovered this when I was traveling for family health reasons in February. There's a service that's a little bit like a dating service that's offered across, uh, I think, North America, but at least in the U.S., where they, it's called ShareWay. So I only discovered it in February, but they will connect you if you're the person who wants to drop off your compostable food scraps to someone who is accepting those scraps because they have the space for it. And then you can drop them off. And I was in a hotel for five weeks helping a relative and I was storing my, because by then I was so addicted to the notion of composting. I was storing my veggie scraps in the freezer of this kitchenette and then bringing them every 10 days or so to to this person I didn't know who was accepting my food scraps. So it's, a, yeah, once you get the bug, I think you sort of try to do everything you can to keep that waste diverted from the landfill. I think that is so true. And once you start doing it, um, once you are doing composting and separating it out of your normal trash, and then you go somewhere that's not doing it, it just feels so yeah. wrong. Yeah. And it's so hard to do to mix in with paper or other kinds yeah. of trash, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it almost feels Pablo. criminal, right? Yeah, for sure. Pablo <laughs> has joined us from LA. Thanks for joining from the Hats team, Pablo. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's funny. When I first came to Japan and they were... Uh, so far advanced from where I was in Hawaii, in America, in terms of separating garbage, doing recycling. There was no composting, yes. but it was so far advanced. And then now when I've gone to the UK or Canada or even back to the US and more people are doing composting, I really hope this is something we can bring to Japan because yes. when I do talk to garbage facility people in Japan and I say, why don't we do mandatory composting like Kamikatsu Zero Waste Town? Yes. They always say that would save the taxpayer so much money yes. because what we found as well, once we started composting, it reduced our waste that we were taking to be incinerated by one third. Immediately. Yeah. Yes. And so they were saying it would save us money. We would use less fossil fuels because yes. we have to transport it less. Right. So there's so yes. many added benefits, I think, for the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I saw the article you'd written about Kamikatsu. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Uh, it's so impressive what, what they've done. And I, I hope they did get to their 2020 zero waste target because it sounds like they were doing just about everything that they possibly could. No, no. but they are at the same level San Francisco is at um, of 80%. 80% okay. diversion from Great. landfill, which is so impressive. And, you know, what they are saying is until we can control all the things people buy, yes. then we, we will never get higher. And that's so true, right? Because you cannot change all the products from all over Japan, which, of course, people who live anywhere want to buy. Yes. Right? Unless you're controlling the whole infrastructure. It's like you said about zero waste shops, even the zero waste shops where you buy things in bulk in your container 
they still have packaging coming in, right? So it's yes. not completely zero waste either. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, we have a good question from Pablo. Do you believe private companies should be held responsible for waste? I do. I do. And it's a thank you for that question, Pablo. A absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I should have started with this. Uh, whatever it, 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 there's, it's like a three legged stool. This is how I think of the, the, the zero waste and the, well, the climate crisis and the waste crises that we're facing um, have to be solved at three different levels, but primarily two different levels, government and private sector. The third leg of the stool, we as individuals, uh, we could talk about a lot more, but I think you know, there's certainly lots of things that if we all did would make a huge difference, but I'm also a huge believer in the power that we have to change our community of friends around us and 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 actually to to let the private sector know what we want to see more of what we want to see less of so everything i talk about is not to absolve government and private sector and in the us and again i don't know about um uh Japan, whether you've got this pending, but there is a piece of legislation in the US at both the federal level, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, and at some state levels, uh, in particular Maine and Oregon, where exactly what Pablo is asking about is about to happen, at least at the state level for sure, and hopefully at the federal level. And that is that if this legislation is passed, then private companies producing the packaging for their products will be held responsible for the end life of that uh, of that uh, packaging and we need that right there's just so much the individual can do Absolutely. and it's really an, an unfair burden that that we're being i mean i spend I hours every Maine, week right yeah. maine had passed legislation yes to make the the Packager, producer. the producer, the manufacturer responsible for the package that they're giving the customer, which yes. they also charge the customer for. We we had someone from TerraCycle here uh, talking about Loop, and yes. a lot of customers don't realize that they're being charged for that package, which is so difficult to recycle. You yes. know, unbelievable. Yes. But let's go back to personal what the person can do, what the individual do, can do, because I love your spur to action, which started <laughs> at your dry cleaners. Can you tell us the story? I love this. Yes. And I see you're, you're showing the picture of one of the owners of the, my local dry cleaners. So I, you know, as I said, I'd been working 25 years in the same institution, too busy to do all the things I thought I should be doing. And one of those things that had been bother bothering me every single weekend, I'd take my clothes and pick up my clothes at the dry cleaners. And I'd always wanted to ask, could you put, instead of putting it in the plastic film packaging, could you put our clean clothes in a reusable garment bag? Finally, don't know why I had to quit my career to get the nerve to ask that question, but I finally walked in and said, you know, ask the question. To my surprise, not a big deal. And I kind of scratched my head, walked away and thought, huh, I wonder if other people would want to do this too. And I got a conversation going with uh, this guy's wife, the co-owner of the dry cleaners, who I've known for 10 years. Yoon, and I said, would you be willing to offer a uh, reusable bag program for your clients? And 
she said yes and she actually got very excited about it. she pulled open her catalog you know these guys these uh shop owners know where they can get their supplies she ordered 20 bags with her logo their their logo on it and it was a little slow the first few weeks and this guy in the picture the her husband would kind of make faces at me when i walked into the dry cleaners because i think he felt he'd invested in these bags and no one was buying them and then all of a sudden it took off and they ordered more and more and a third of their clients by the time the pandemic hit a third of their clients had started using these green reusable bags and so it used to be you'd walk in there sea of plastic and now you know it's it's at least a third less so yeah that's where my story began I love and you know that. when and it it just starts with asking politely and uh, you find this in Japan too right Sometimes yeah. if you just yeah. ask, can I use my own bag? Can I use my own container at the bakery or wherever you usually use way too many plastic bags? Um, and sometimes they say yes, and then you can move forward and see if other people be interested. It's a really great story about how you got started. Yeah, I think most small uh, shop, most small entrepreneurs, uh, shopkeepers like like this uh, business want to please their customers. They do losing one customer is just not something they ever want to do on any day. And so they are they are almost bound to say yes. I would say when I have asked the various questions since then that I've asked, I can only think of no a couple of times. And the no was usually because they were too busy or they didn't understand or they weren't sure it was legal for them to do it. So almost always you do get the yes. And once you get the yes, the really exciting thing is if someone sees you, you know, with that reusable container or whatever it is, the reusable coffee cup, takeout container, then other people get the bug. Or they they I've seen people's eyes light up. I didn't know you could do that. And then you start to see that that one little question and the action that uh, the shopkeeper was willing to to let happen, you know, can create change. And enough people do it and it really changes the community, changes what happens in that store. Now, you did uh, just release your book. So, of course, it was you do tackle some of the difficulties for plastic waste during coronavirus as well. Uh, yes. with COVID-19. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know everybody's kind of realizing how much extra plastic we have in our lives right now. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's disturbing. Uh, and I think the plastics industry has taken advantage of some early views about what's safe, what's not safe. Uh, I, I think the, the theories have been just, you know, disbunked about, uh, debunked about I don't know about whether in Japan you were all wiping down your groceries, but we were doing that for months until uh, finally we were told, uh, you know, that's probably not necessary anymore. So I, I think there was a very big push uh, to have more things packaged in plastic. And it's not necessary. Uh, during the pandemic, very early in the pandemic, I think in June or July, so last summer, uh, a uh, dozens of epidemiologists and other folks in the medical industry came out and said, not true that, you know, touching a container necessarily with, without plastic makes it any more dangerous. You know, the key thing, of course, we learned is just wash your hands before you do anything. 
So unfortunately, because we all got into those habits for all those months, even after these concerns were debunked, I think people continued to stick with some of the uh, practices that that we had. I'm now seeing more and more places willing to go back to the reusable cups, coffee shops, that sort of thing. Um, and I think again, I, I don't want to put too much on the consumer, but I think we this is an opportunity for us to come back and ask. You know, if everyone was tentative a year ago, they can be less tentative now about. Uh, using your reusable container. So I think we need to show that we want that to happen again. Definitely. And I'm showing uh, from your website, you have some advice um, for maybe asking at your local takeout place if they would be willing to put it in your container. And uh, home delivery seems impossible, but like your dry cleaner story, maybe there is a chance for you to talk to a local business person that you know and get them to try maybe a pilot scheme of 20 reusable containers that some other regular customers might try and get yes. some feedback and then maybe move forward and developing that as an added service for people who are interested. It takes yeah. that initial investment, which people are usually quite scary of doing, right? Something yes. new that the, might put the customer off. Yes, I think there's a lot of conservatism uh, with shop owners about upsetting their customers in any way. So again, we need to let them know what we want. But uh, just since you just said delivery, you can't do that plastic free. I have a great new company I've just learned about a couple weeks ago that is in a, its early stages here, right? Not in Japan and not even in DC. They're just, but in about 10 minutes away in Tacoma Park, Maryland, across the border, there's a company called Paradigm to Go that is offering, um, They've partnered with five restaurants in the same vicinity in Tacoma Park, and they've got these reusable, they are plastic, but these reusable containers that they're putting takeout and delivery in. I actually had delivery in these containers. And when you're done, you just rinse it out and you bring it back to this kiosk and you deposit you're used, you scan it with a QR code and you deposit it back in the kiosk and it gets, you know, cleaned, uh, sanitized, and then redistributed to these five restaurants. And they're hoping to expand, obviously, to other restaurants in the in the vicinity. But that, to me, is exciting. And whenever I see a company trying to do the right thing, oh, that's, I'm willing to spend some extra dollars on, just like I was with paying for composting to get picked up before I started doing my own. I'm so happy to support those kind of companies that are trying to do the right thing. Absolutely. And that sounds very close to the TerraCycle loop idea yes. about making a small deposit on the container. And then after you use it, bringing it back to wherever you bought it from and giving it for reuse. And, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, the quality, the, the perception of quality, it actually improves because yeah. the quality of the container improves. So maybe a reusable container could keep the heat or keep the cool better yes. than a disposable one, right? So there's added uh, yeah. benefit there. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was so glad to see that you had someone from Loop on your show. And I was so glad to hear that they expanded recently in Japan, because I know they've been in expansion mode. But that concept that Loop has, you're right, it's it's just like this local place trying to do the, the t- reusable takeout containers. I mean, those opportunities to rethink the packaging. I mean, you know, we'd all love to have zero waste stores near us where we could buy in bulk and bring our own containers. But just the rethinking, I, I don't have one solution, I'll be honest, in my life. I have multiple solutions. And Loop, by the way, is one of them. That's what I use for my shampoo and conditioner. Uh, I haven't moved to the shampoo bars, which is what I think most zero wasters do. Just hasn't worked for my hair. I know the video is not working, but I've got thick hair these shampoo bars just don't seem to work on maybe i just haven't found my perfect one but you know loop offers have you the, tried lush lush do you have lush in your area? We, yes we do I and i did love the lush <laughs> shampoo bars but exactly like you say you have to find one that's going to work with your hair um yeah and there's so many now but i love your idea about how you organize your fridge in uh-huh. terms of reducing food waste, but also so many beautiful reusable containers there. Can you tell us your strategy? Yes. So so when I figured out food waste was a big problem and that it was one I could tackle and I must tackle, I then realized I wasn't really equipped to tackle it because I wasn't used to thinking about it. So what I did is I made myself start a new habit. Two minutes a day, I do this daily fridge review. I wake up in the morning, have my coffee. I look in the fridge and I just quickly, because I do it every day, it doesn't take that long. You know, I quickly try to figure out what needs to be eaten today, you know, during the course of the day, or it's going to end up going bad. And if I'm not going to eat it that day, then I will freeze it. So I I created this habit. And if you really want to make it work, I've found and I see displayed the picture of my fridge there. um, A good day for my fridge is what you've posted that. But I put a sign that says eat me first on one shelf so that other people that not doing the fridge review like I am know that's where they should turn their attention to when they open the fridge. I will admit that I read the B. Johnson book. I bought some nice jars uh, I've since stopped buying anything zero waste because I realize I pretty much have everything I need. I, I do think the initial investment in some Pyrex, if you can't see what's in your fridge, you're in trouble because if you can't see what's in the containers, because it, it, at least I think we're all human and they're all, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. So we, that visibility, that being able to see it has made a huge difference. So the transparency of glass works in our favor there. Uh, Did I have to go and buy a whole new set of Pyrex to do that? In retrospect, no, I could have used other containers that I already had. I I do use those as well. I use jars. Now I know how to take those labels off so I can reuse them. But this was one investment that, you know, if you have some extra cash, this works because you will see the payoff you will you will stop wasting so much food when you can see it Uh, let's talk about your jars for a second because i love this concept as well and i think this improves your perception of your ingredients and your perception of the kitchen because this is a beautiful like retro traditional look 
in the kitchen and you can see all your contents exactly what you said before and you're reusing jars which of course extending the life of any container is more sustainable than immediately recycling it as well yes yes can you tell us about this, this is awesome yeah so i got so excited about the jars. I don't think there's anyone who dips their toe in the zero waste movement that doesn't see the beauty in glass and the beauty in the jar. And, you know, it is, it is cool that you can see really easily, just quickly, for example, how much rice is left, you know, oh, okay, now I'm running, you know, got my list running to the store, but do I have enough rice? I can just look, don't have to open the cupboard. In this case, I had this little shelf built off the kitchen so I could see it really easily. And it, um, it means I'm not overbuying rice and I'm not underbuying rice. I'm buying just the right amount of rice. Uh, I, again, the first uh, six, seven jars I, I purchased from, you know, one of these fancy jar companies. That's it. I haven't bought any more of those. I love those. I adore them. They look beautiful. But the rest of the jars, I are now my, re, you know, jars from pasta sauces or peanut butter, whatever, that I've washed and reused. And once you take the label off, honestly, you don't really pay attention to whether it was this fancy named uh, jar or something that you salvaged. Um, so I love my jars. I love all of them. I love the ones I bought for this purpose. And I, I love the ones I repurposed for this purpose. Um, I and it. I, I you know, too, and it looks so stylish and it looks like the kind of kitchen I want to have, you know, <laughs> like it, you, you have to create your atmosphere to have a high quality life as well as a more sustainable life. It's so important, right? Yeah, this is my favorite part of the kitchen. And it's not even in the kitchen. It's as I said, it's just off the kitchen. But this is kind of my meditative corner. You know, I look at the jars and I feel Marie Kondo kind of peacefulness about the rest of the house isn't so minimalist, but this space feels nice. And it's inspiring, you know, in its own way. Yeah, you have your internal joy, like Marie Kondo says, um, yes. like you mentioned her. Uh, one other thing that I use with glass, um, one of the big hurdles in Japan is the plastic drink bottle, the pet bottle. Oh, and yes. I know that less than 20% of these bottles are recycled. And even recycling creates so much pollution. And these bottles are used for five minutes or less, usually, right? Like, yes, such a short time in use, such a huge amount of time in the environment. If it gets there, we pick up these pet bottles off beaches and rivers in Japan every time we do a cleanup. So yeah. I made a promise to myself never to buy them again. Yeah. And that started last year. And I do not buy them. I do not bring them home from the shop. I do not buy them when I'm out, which really limits what I can drink. It's yes. really hard. <laughs> um, but one thing I did find is these glass bottles you can get from the liquor shops full yeah. of soda water. And we love soda water in summer. And yeah. so once uh, the soda water is gone, I put filtered tap water in and keep it in the fridge. So it's nice and cold. It's in these great bottles. And you know, like when you watch Friends episodes or TV yeah. shows, everybody's going and getting the cold water from the fridge and it's usually in a plastic bottle, right? Yeah. So I just thought that was an easy swap for our family. I to love that. change it out with yeah. reusable glass bottles. 
use the tap water. So I'm not buying, you're saving money as well. Yes, but this is, absolutely. This is a great concept in your book, right? How to look at your life and find swaps that work, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I, I always say start with the easiest thing first. And so I love, of course, I love that you just gave that example. That's the one I always, that's, you know, when I was in my office place, I would buy, I, I, I'm so embarrassed to say it now, but it's the truth. I would buy one to two plastic, you know, pet bottles of water every day without thinking. You know, I was leading climate change and I was buying these bottles every day. So that's, you know, about 700 bottles, six to 700 a year. That's a lot. So I made, so my, you know, first step was I'm going to, I'm just going to start somewhere and it's going to be, I'm never going to buy one of these plastic bottles again. Now, that's not true if I go to a place where the water quality is not good, right? But where I live, the water, tap water is just fine. And if you filter it, it's even better. So now I carry my reusable, I'm sorry, you can't see me, but I have this everywhere, but I'm holding up my reusable um, stainless steel container bottle. And if I forget it, I go thirsty. And that means I don't forget it very often. Uh, because I've made this vow, I don't allow myself to buy it. You know, I don't think we need to be uh, you know, extreme about anything, but uh, that worked for me to kind of tell myself, if you mean this, Stephanie, then follow through. And uh, then, you know, I think my philosophy is once you start doing that one thing, it kind of opens up your eyes to all the waste you're bringing into the house. You know, not not on not our fault, right? Stuff is packaged for the most part. But then it gives you incentive, I think, to try to figure out what's the next thing I could reduce and what's the next thing. And it doesn't have to be the really hard stuff, but at least you start picking at that low hanging fruit. And pretty soon, just like what you were saying about food waste, you see a drastic change pretty quickly. If you if you aim for those things that you're purchasing all the time, like the plastic water bottle in my case. Absolutely. And uh, I think this links in with your uh, idea of wish cycling, right? The problems yes. with just thinking recycling is the answer. And I think this goes back to something Pablo said, being environmentally friendly shouldn't lie on the customer's shoulders alone. And what we were talking about, about changing regulation, putting the yes. burden back on the manufacturer who's actually giving us all this plastic packaging we don't want. Yeah, um, but the the whole concept of wish cycling is really important to realize recycling is not the answer. Yes, we need to recycle well, but it's not the answer. It's at the lowest point of the waste hierarchy that you talk about in the book. Can you talk yes. about that just a little bit? This waste. Yes. Hierarchy? So so I so of the the three themes I talk about: food, plastics. Recycling is the third one, and it. But it, if I had to do it in a hierarchy, it is the third one on purpose. Recycling, we will never recycle our way out of the waste problem we have, but not recycling correctly is going to get us in more trouble, right? So, my philosophy about this is, 
we all, and I think especially in Japan, I mean, I have taught, I, I was speaking to a, a good friend of mine who lives here now, but she's uh, Japanese and she goes back uh, frequently. And she was explaining to me how careful people are in Japan and the, about recycling and the rules change a lot of times and people are watching whether you're following the rules or not. So in the US, that's not true. So maybe you don't have this wish cycling problems so much in Japan, but in the US, you know, there's this moment, we've all done it, where we're hovering over the recycle bin and we just hope that this plastic thing is recyclable, is accepted in the residential recycling program. And the problem with putting things in that don't belong is you could be contaminating that that bin you know, if, if there's food on it, for example, that's literal contamination. But if it's just the wrong thing, it creates an efficiency in the system. The biggest problem when I visit all the recycling centers in this region, that all the centers will tell me is that people bag their recyclables. Again, I'm sure this doesn't happen in Japan, but you know, when you when you put that plastic film, like the dry cleaning plastic film or the grocery bag, that gets caught up in the rollers, in the mechanism when they're sorting and can cause injury to the workers. So that's contamination of a different kind. And that's the number one problem in the US in terms of contamination is people throwing in this thin plastic, a lot of which is recyclable, but not by those residential recycling facilities. It needs to be taken to a separate place to be recycled. So I really, I think it's important to get the recycling piece right because of the energy Yes, it takes energy to recycle, but it takes so much more energy to uh, mine the metals that we need to produce the aluminum can. We save 95% of the energy when we recycle that can versus having to create it from new materials. Uh, as, as we save energy, we save all sorts of resources. So yes, it's last on the list, recycling, but I think it's still important to focus on and, and try to get right as much as we can. Definitely. Um, it's really interesting what you said about making sure you're cleaning your containers, uh, getting your recycling separated from organic matter, and that really helps with the process. You also talk about making sure uh, you don't put in things that are too small or things which are dangerous, such as yes. batteries or aerosols, those have to be uh, recycled separately. Of course, this is really area specific. And actually it's really surprising to me, but in Japan, we have these community waste areas for mm -hmm. each neighborhood or each building. And everybody puts their recycling out in plastic bags. So it is a different system in oh, that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Everybody puts it out in, in bags. That's just the way it's done here. But I no. would love to see more of like a tip or a skip that everybody puts the recycling into. And then that goes cleaner yes. to the recycling center. And I think that also adds transparency and accountability, yes. you're not going to put a dirty container without it being hidden in a plastic bag, right? So <laughs> I, I think that that helps in terms of your community responsibility in Japan, which is a very good incentive to yes. obey the rules, right? 
That's what I understand. Yeah, we. I, I wish we had a little bit more of that here. Um, I mean, you go from your 60, right? Your, your, your 60 categories in uh, Kamikatsu to we have single stream here in my community. So it's the opposite. I mean, I, mean, I know most of Japan is not uh, uh, separating into 60 piles, but um, you know, here it's all about making it easier for the consumer uh, to recycle more, but it doesn't necessarily help the process win because you you definitely do introduce more contamination if you're throwing everything in one one place. Yeah, I I want to mention the the three hurdles you talk about in your book. Uh, busy people may want to do the right thing, but just don't have time. Businesses may want to do the right thing, but fear taking a risk that will affect their bottom line. And once people see a new easy way that they can do the right thing, they jump pretty quick on the bandwagon. And I, I think this is such a great uh, thing to keep in mind in terms of tackling these more sustainable solutions that we really want to move towards, right? Yes, th that was my conclusion that I came to those three things after you know, I had my aha moment at the dry cleaners uh, because it, I thought, well, it can't be just me uh, that wants to, that would welcome this kind of change of having the option of the reusable bags. And I, and I, and I really believe most people are a bit shocked and upset by all the plastic they're bringing into their homes uh, during the pandemic. I think the difficult thing is taking that step in asking and risking getting rejected uh, when you ask the question takes a little bit of courage, right? When, you, when you're doing something that nobody else, that you don't see anyone else doing. But I, I really believe it can have a profound, it can make a profound difference. Uh, because businesses, when they, when they hear something from one person, they may think, oh, okay, that person's, you know, little odd they have their, or maybe they maybe they don't but if they hear it from three people in one week or one month they are going to take notice and uh, especially these smaller shopkeepers right they're paying attention to the feedback from their from their clients so i think there's a lot of potential i think we should all try to do the easy things like maybe it's the reusable water bottle the harder things you know i the kind of the black belt, karate black belt things are when you, in, in plastic in swaps, is when you're actually moving a market in a different direction, asking a question that's risky, but that could make a difference to how the, the company or the, the shop sees its business. Yeah, definitely. And you, you have a great uh, section of the book called Beyond the Individual. And I think that ties in beautifully with what you just said. What can we as individuals do to reverse the current climate and waste crisis? Could individual actions have a ripple effect and could lead to systemic change? If so, how could busy people contribute to making these systemic changes? Great questions, right? So the... Yeah, that 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 last piece is what gives me the most hope that the individual, despite our limitations, as we talked about, and despite the fact that absolutely government, private sector need to step in, step up, the individual 
has such potential because we have the power to set the social norms. We have the power to influence the people around us. And I'm sure anyone who listens to you is already focused on sustainability. And I just find it so powerful to know that if any of your listeners post on their social media about what it is they're doing today, even a tiny little step they're taking, picking up some trash while they're walking the dogs or um, or focusing on how to further reduce their food waste, they are sending messages to their specific community, the people that like them, that follow them about what they're doing around it. That's powerful. We talked about asking those difficult questions, maybe difficult questions to shopkeepers to express what we would like to see more. And then I think the possibility of just seeking out those businesses trying to do the right things like that example I gave about the paradigm to go, the company that's uh, trying to make takeout more sustainable, um, the the compost, uh, residential compost uh, that I had to pay a fee for, supporting those kind of companies makes a really big difference. And And then of course, the ultimate difference I think that we as individuals have is the power in democracies to vote to vote for what we want to see, what we want our leaders to introduce, like that break free from plastic legislation in in this country, in the U.S. Uh, That's a lot of power we have. So we need to use it. Uh, And uh, and I think if we do, we we can start to see differences really quickly. Definitely. I'm just showing your website right now. Um, There is a lot of wonderful information on your website, um, which I would definitely encourage people to go and have a look at. In addition to your book, which is fantastic, easy to read, and has so many great insights there from your career, uh, working with the United Nations, but also very practical business solutions that you have adopted into this 80-20 rule. And your website has all these great resources. I love this page that you have on recycling tips of the week. You have cooking tips. Um, There's so much to explore and learn from here. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'm curious about the answers. So when I figure out the answer to a recycling question, I want to let everybody know. So I try to put it in one place, but thank you. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, I would encourage anybody to go and get that book. Definitely um, have it as a resource and also as a source of motivation. Um, But also, like you said, Stephanie, about sharing your ideas on social media, finding a good company and sharing it with your friends, asking ad companies if uh, less waste options would be possible or If you have an idea, suggest it and see if it might happen. And then if it does adopted by the company, share it with your friends and try to get them to support the idea and make sure it stays there, right? Yes, yes, that is great advice. Little risk-taking, but totally worth it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've got just a few more minutes. Is there something we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? Uh, The only thing I would say is um, I have been gripped by eco-anxiety in the last week uh, with the report that uh, came out, the UN Climate Report last week, 
And I find myself, even though there is nothing in that report that was not expected for those of us who follow this stuff, um, it was, uh, I, I am finding the kinds of conversations I'm having with my friends, uh, they, are, they are anxious as well. And I, I think it's an opportunity for us to, I, I, I always like to see the silver lining and the, the hope, and I actually think there's, there's a lot in that report that is telling us it's not too late, but we've got to hurry up and, and do things. Um, and so I, I think everything we just talked about, especially what you were just highlighting in the last few minutes about, uh, you know, being, being in, kind of an activist in your own sphere and spreading the word becomes that much more important. And I think things like, I'm, I'm actually publishing a blog tomorrow uh, about um, you know getting on a more I'm not a vegetarian I will admit I'm not a vegetarian but getting on a more plant-based diet which has been a challenge for me and an ongoing challenge and one that I have found different ways of of uh, uh, getting getting toward my goals you know take an action do something and then tell someone else about it there's so much power it doesn't have to be judgmental it doesn't have to be shaming it shouldn't be in fact it can be so positive it can be I just tried this great vegetarian recipe. I'm going to send it to you. It's terrific. Or it can be, I just read the UN climate report. I'm trying to figure out what I can do. And I'm going to adopt one more plant-based meal. I decided every week, you know, letting people know what you're doing, even when there's all this eco-anxiety, I think, and especially becomes that much more powerful. I think people can hear it in a different way. Absolutely. So that's the silver yeah. lining, I think, to the, <clears throat> some of the bad news. There's also a lot we can do. Definitely. And I love this quote that you have in your book, as well as on your website here, we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing it imperfectly by Anne-Marie Bonnet uh, from the zero waste uh, chief of, is that the United Nations? It's no, she's she's this amazing chef, zero waste blogger. Oh, okay. Who is she just came out with this? She's known as the zero waste chef, and she just came out with this cookbook called The Zero Waste Chef. And she is, I mean, you should follow her or your listeners should follow. She is an amazing uh blogger, she's an amazing activist and an amazing chef. And I've just started actually uh, testing out her recipes in her book. And they're wonderful, delicious. And then she's got all these tips for how you can make sure you use those Swiss chard stems or you know whatever else you thought you were gonna just throw in the compost bin without thinking about it further. But I agree with you. I wish that were my quote, that's her quote. And it's, I think it's powerful because again, that ripple effect, what, you know, it's, if, if a lot of us do, a lot of little things or a few impactful things, we really can make a difference. Definitely. And it, you, you know, very logically, very practically, uh, you talk about trying to reduce your meat intake by 20%, but also do it in a way that makes sense. So which meats have the heaviest carbon impact? Oh, you're going to try to reduce those first. Of course, that makes the yes. most sense, right? So yeah. just try to look at your life. Everything is case by case. Something somebody else is doing, which is wonderful, may not suit your lifestyle. So looking yes. at your own life and figuring out what you could change, what you might change, what's possible for you, that's the, the way to go, right? Yes, I think you've said it so 
beautifully. I, I, I think we, we don't need to look at all the things around us and to, to see, oh, we're not doing that quite right. And we're not doing this quite right. We're not getting to zero waste. You know, I think we can all just find the things that work for us. And if we just did that, that would have impact. Absolutely. What a wonderful way to end. So don't give up. Don't don't be overwhelmed. It is overwhelming, of course, but know that every little effort you can make makes a difference and know that you're not alone. And there's wonderful people around the world in the U.S., in Japan and everywhere who are trying to make better changes. So every little conversation, every little effort makes a big difference. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And we hope next time to have you on the show and we can actually see you. So yes, will, that would be great. We will work it out next time. Yes. <laughs> we will. I will. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Please join us again next time. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Everyone have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.